Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's good to be together again. I hope you are enjoying the weather. Uh, personally, I love it. I love the heat, even though I've been known to pray for snow. But anyway, who cares? Let's talk about distractions. Distractions can be devastating. Now, this week, I actually witnessed a driver on Bishop Grandin. I was heading down there, and the driver was in front of me and weaving back and forth. And the crazy thing is, because I was behind it, I could see what was going on in the front seat. And every time they put their head down, they moved into the left lane, picked their head up, and went to the right. So obviously, obviously, they were on their phone. That same day, I waited behind another individual just over here at, at an intersection, waiting to make a left turn onto uh, McGilvery. Uh, they too were on their phone while we waited for the lights to go through an entire cycle without even moving forward. Now, in both cases, I wanted to honk my horn, but I need to let you know I practiced self-control. I really did. But the fact is, is that we all face distractions. And uh, it's not, I'm not just talking about distracted driving, but uh, trolling the internet and we get down some rabbit hole or posting and commenting on social media, right? Gossiping about other people, unforgiveness. And the list can go on and on about distractions that come into our lives. Now, some of us are more susceptible than others. Look, squirrel. Sorry, some of us are more susceptible than others, but we are all easily diverted from our mental focus. For example, both you and I would be absolutely amazed to know how many times, just in this life lesson alone, that your attention will drift from what uh, our text is saying to something else like what's for lunch or what do we have plans this, this, uh, for the afternoon? Why are the kids so silent? And we're constantly forced to refocus our minds, which actually drift so easily. And so in one way, our text is about how Paul wants to help the people in Corinth to minimize the distractions which so easily focus our hearts and our minds really on earthly things rather than on things of eternal significance. Jesus told a parable about a farmer who went out to plant some seeds way back in Matthew 13. I would hope that you would remember that when we went through this. Let me tell you about it. Some of the seeds fell on the wayside. The birds came and they ate them up. Some of the seeds fell on shallow ground and they sprouted a little bit, but they got scorched in the sun. Some of those seeds fell on thorny ground and they grew up, but they got choked out because of the thorns. And some seed fell on good soil where they produced fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Later on, when he was in, uh, uh, with his disciples alone, Jesus told them what these four soils uh, what they meant, and that they were a picture of uh, the ways that people received the message of the gospel. And so Jesus goes on, he tells the disciples, he said, look, some receive it with no depth at all. And the devil comes and quickly snatches it away before it can take root. Some receive it in a shallow way, that it, it, it doesn't grow very deeply in them, and as soon as persecutions and other things arise, they quickly abandon it and it's gone. And some receive it with depth, they receive the word with depth and begins to grow, but the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the gospel growth so it doesn't have a long-term impact on their lives like it should. And of course, finally, some receive it and it's with true depth. Uh, they keep uh, within it and it bears good fruit in their lives. 
Now, we're not going to be talking about that parable this morning, but I felt it was a good way for us to begin our time this morning reminding us, reminding us, uh, particularly about the third soil. Because I believe it helps us understand what we're actually being told in 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, I suggest that many of us, many of us are in danger of becoming like the third soil. We're in we're in danger of allowing the cares of this world to choke out the growth of God's word in our lives. Think about that. You know, we can easily forget that God has to remain in the top priority in our lives. Almost without noticing that this is happening, we, we allow the cares of the world, right, just to slip in into a higher priority in our lives than maybe they really should. And what happens is we get into the habit of making uh, life decisions and, and we're not even consulting God. We're not taking it to prayer. And, and pretty soon before we know it, we find that we're no longer able to give God the kind of uh, uh, undistracted service that he desires from us. Paul's been writing to the Corinthian believers and he's been answering some questions uh, that they had. He's already discussed the place of sex and marriage and the right and the wrong of divorce. He's, he's showed us where we find our identity. It's not our vocation, our position, our status, but it's, it's who we are in Christ. I talked about that last week. And so now we're beginning it with verse 26 of chapter 7, and we come to this section that's usually addressed in the Bible as the, unmar- you know, it's the unmarried, the virgins. Uh, and uh, It addresses the unmarried and it sets forth the advantages and the pressures of single life. Now one of the questions that they had was about whether or not it was wise, given to the particular circumstances of those times, for an unmarried person to enter into into the commitment of marriage. And in the process of answering that question, Paul teaches them about a much larger principle concerning life decisions, about choosing Christ-honoring priorities in life. So let's do this. Let's examine the passage and then I'll make a few comments a little bit later. So grab your Bibles, your iPhones, iPads, eyelids, open them all up. Let's get together here. Jump into our text, chapter 7, verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as to one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Okay, I need to point this out before we go any further. Paul is very clear that what he's about to share is not a command from God, but rather it's his counsel, it's his advice. You know, we tend to think of Paul as this aggressive preacher, take charge kind of guy, you know, that every word that comes out of Paul's mouth through pen is like, thus saith the Lord, and we might think that, you know, we dare not disobey it, and Paul gives these commands, we got to obey. Well, Paul does give commands. And when he does give commands in Scripture, he does expect us to obey, but he also makes it very clear that, in that case. But when his words are an expression of his personal convictions and preferences, he indicates this as well. So while Paul indicates that he's giving his advice, he's also encouraging the readers to take this advice seriously, which I think is something that we have to do when we approach this passage. So we continue on. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I just want to spare you from this. And all who have experienced that can say amen, and we can close the Bibles and call it a day. I'm just kidding. There's a whole lot of truth that Paul is referring to here. Now, he explains himself. Follow along. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they um, uh, did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, but how can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of his world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? I'm saying... This for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anybody is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So now, the thing that I ask you to notice in, in all of what we just read is, that, is what actually Paul says in verse 35. You know, he said that he's not laying down these guidelines in, in any way to hinder anybody, but. Um, he's not trying to put a leash on his fellow believers. We need to remember that as we look at this passage. Rather, he's wanting to help them focus on what's proper in respect to their life in Jesus. And he said that, uh, he said it was all that you might live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion. We need to keep that in the back of our mind as we go through this whole chapter, the rest of the chapter. The first thing that I need to address is the commentators are at odds as to what the crisis that Paul talks about and, and uh, is alluding to in verse 26. Some are suggesting that there's a local crisis in Corinth. Perhaps there's a financial pressures or there's a famine or some sort of economic situation of some kind. Some uh, also have suggested that because Christianity was flourishing, possibly people were being persecuted for being believers. Um, others see this as a reference of Paul's hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, all of which I personally have no problem with. However, I kind of share the view that because Paul, when he's writing Scripture, he's writing for all Christians in all times. And actually, in some of his letters, he actually infers that. Uh, uh, he may be not talking about anything in particular, any immediate crisis in particular, but he's referring to returning crisis that literally every generation of Christians have had to face. 
In 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. And actually, the church is always living, hear me clearly, the church is always living in the last days. Because they stretch from the the coming of Christ to his second return. We read this in Hebrews. It makes it very clear uh, in in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. See, you can look back throughout all of history and you can see how true this really is. Every generation of Christians has faced a time when they thought that Jesus was about to return. When the events of the life, the events of the world were so terrible that in their view that this was leading up to something to precipitate the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are no exception today. We are facing, when you think about it, we are actually facing our own crisis right now in our own time, in our own day. We have COVID. We have financial crisis. We have social crisis. And, and even today, many are saying, well, this is the end times. But I believe that, that God intended, hear me carefully, every generation of Christians to feel that. In fact, I think Jesus could have returned at any of those times of crisis in the past. Where World War I, World War II, um, you had the Vietnam War, the Korean War, you had, uh, um, oh my goodness, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Any time that the world was on edge, people thought this was it, this was it. And again, I think that Jesus could have returned at any of those times. As, just as I believe that he can return now. But as Jesus said himself, nobody knows for sure. No one knows the day nor the hour of his return. And so therefore, this is a word. This word here in uh, 1 Corinthians has an application to Christians no matter when they lived. So now let's deal with the obvious. Paul talks about singleness in marriage. You know, I took some time to look at the stats in North America, and we see that cohabitation is on the rise, but marriage is on the decline. Uh, this is certainly attributable to self-centered, pleasure-driven, experience-oriented, commitment-free spirit of our age. Also, the pornification of our culture, unchecked materialism, the carnage of broken families. It all serves for prompts to where we're going. And it Pressure lies on Christians to reinforce the portrait of biblical marriage, both for church and society. But what the church has inadvertently done is to idolize marriage. It has, in some respect, shunned or at the very least stigmatized singleness amongst Christian people. You know, we've communicated that, that men, especially, should get married, right? Uh, Get married early, it'll keep you out of porn, it'll make you responsible, keep you from getting grouchy, you know. Uh, get them help that they desperately need through a wife, right? And, and you think about that, sometimes that's just a recipe for disaster. So here's the takeaway this morning. While Paul wisely recommends Christian marriage to facilitate sexual propriety, he actually elevates Christian singleness to facilitate focused opportunity so that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You hear that? There are some in the church world that would seem to give the impression that singleness is not desired and indeed single people need to learn to cope with their singleness. 
And of course, this is usually all said by married folk, right? Now, admittedly, there are those who find singleness difficult because they find themselves in a single position, no fault of their own. You know, sometimes one's life partner is removed, leaving a hole in their lives. For others, divorce has left one in a single condition. For others, they're simply told, look, you just need to rest in the gift of singleness. And I think that the church needs to rethink what we are communicating to people in our midst, part of our community, part of our family. And what Paul is saying in our text is that, especially in times of crisis, the single life actually has an advantage. You can be more flexible. You're quickly to adapt uh, to certain sudden actions or events. You can pick up and move more easily if necessary. There's, There's less concern for handling all the affairs of others whom you may feel that you're responsible for. And Paul begins to actually list advantages. And he's not trying to put down marriage throughout this section at all. He's actually lifting up singleness as a perfectly proper way of life. And those who choose it or find themselves in it are not secondary citizens. They are exercising a degree of wisdom that is perhaps superior to those who have simply gone along and gotten married without weighing the advantages or disadvantages involved. And so what he's doing is actually, you know, very plainly setting forth for us what might be a better course. Now, Paul makes it clear that there's nothing wrong with getting married in a time of crisis either. He basically alludes that it might be unwise, but it's not a sin. And if anybody marries, he's not committing any type of terrible kind of misjudgment. He's very clear on that. We kind of laugh at that, that statement, but actually that was too often the view of the church in the past. There were whole periods of time in church history where where people actually looked down on marriage. People were taught that uh, that to be single and to live by yourself was actually a superior state of spiritual progress and that actually married people were second-rate citizens because they couldn't control themselves. And I think this is hard for us to understand in these times, but nevertheless, that was also true. So without question, marriage increases responsibility. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. You got those things like taxes, in-laws, that's a huge responsibility, right? Children, if you have, schooling, um, flimsy things the living room needs to be fixed, you know, things like that. Uh, Other problems that marriage presents, right? And at any rate, Paul is saying that those who get married actually take on now a greater or extra responsibility. And, and that's actually a, a wise, practical word. Anybody who lives in a time of crisis ought to weigh those advantages and disadvantages carefully before you get married. What added ex, uh, uh, responsibilities are you going to take on in your relationship? And so as we read this, we see that the single life doesn't have uh, moral issues connected to it here. Paul has already talked about the handling of our sex drives and sexual immorality for either married or single people. He, he gave certain commands about them. He, he did it about divorce as well because there were moral problems connected to them. And so he's already dealt with that. Paul is clearly stating for us what he sees as a great advantage in unmarried life. That the single life makes it easier to maintain the proper priorities of life. And these priorities actually apply to all of us, whether you're married or single. And if you're a Christian, you you ought to face life differently than you would as a non-believer. 
you ought to see things differently. You ought to have different values. You should have different standards. Whether you're married or single, that should be true simply because you're a believer. But there is the clear implication that in all of this, that it's easier to do that if you remain single. Isn't that interesting? This is what Paul is saying. Another way of looking at the context of this passage is that possibly Paul is also reviewing, uh, referring to the brevity of life. Paul may have in the back of his mind Psalm 90 where, where David is singing about human life being you know, consisting of 70, 80 years if you're lucky. I personally am increasingly aware of the shortness of time and how few years we have on earth to do the things that God has desired. The exciting adventures that God sets before us. How one would want to pursue them more and more. I know that's for me in doing more and more ministry. And the longer that we live, the more we are aware of how time seems to fly by. Somebody once said, about the time your face clears up, your mind begins to go. (laughs) That's actually the way that life seems to be. And the Christian reaction is, use the short time for eternal purposes. Be sure that the aim in the center of your life is not just making a living, but you're making a life. And this is what he is saying, and this is why he says those who have wives should live as if they do not. He's not encouraging you to neglect your wife and not fulfill your responsibilities to your children or home. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. What he is saying, of course, is that we are to keep those things strictly in proper focus. Don't let the maintaining of your home be the major reason for your existence. Don't give all your time to enjoying this present life. There are higher demands, there are higher challenges to life than that. And marriages are only for this life. They're not for eternity, and that may be a shock for some of you to hear. And so even... Even marriage, God-given as it is, beautiful as it is, is not necessarily the highest choice an individual can make. And that is what Paul means throughout this whole passage. If some people here choose to get married or wait in order that they might pursue other standards, especially spiritual dimensions of involvement, right, then they should be honored for that. They're making a choice that is right and good and proper and nobody should put them down because of it. So his words to us is don't let all these things the world lives for become the center of your life. Joys and sorrows are going to be seen quite differently from the viewpoint of eternity. Success in business is not the greatest aim of life and should never be allowed to be so as, us, as a believer. All the world is passing away. John writes that we don't love the world Uh, or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. The form of this world is passing away. So what are you living for? Surely you got to be more than having a pleasant home or a retirement plan to cram in your sunset years with a few activities that you're unable to get in before you die. Maybe you want to spend your kids' inheritance. That's what I want to do. But you know what? Christians are not to live that way because we have an opportunity for fulfillment far beyond this life. 
Technically, retirement is not scriptural. Just that's a whole nother message. You know, we don't have to try to cram it into all one brief episode. What awaits is so exceedingly fantastic and beyond description that to give God, to give ourselves fully to the pursuit of the things of God here is a much wiser choice than to waste one's whole existence on secondary levels of activity and involvement. It's easier, Paul suggests, to do that if you remain signal, single. And many people find themselves there. And, and this, that, that's really the climax of what Paul has to say about the single life. He says it makes it possible to have a degree of dedication and devotion, of commitment to the work of Christ that actually married life doesn't allow. Now, he does not mean that there is anything wrong with a husband trying to please his wife or a wife trying to please her husband. God has said elsewhere that that's what really marriage is for. But what Paul is saying here is that if you have this gift of celibacy, if you can control your passions, right, then maybe it is actually better for you, his advice, his counsel, maybe it's actually better for you not to get married. Did you hear that? For others, it is better to get married, but maybe for you it's not. And, and your highest fulfillment with respect to the things of God that he can discover if you remain single instead and dedicated to him. And I think when we look at history, the, the world owes much to men and women who have chosen in, to remain single for the sake of God rather than to get married. There are guys, um, a great preacher, John, John Stott, great preacher, great theologian, used to spend two to three hours every morning in Bible study and prayer and worship. I find it very difficult to do that as a married man, certain demands, right, certain requirements, certain responsibilities of the household make it difficult to kind of, you know, take that kind of schedule. And, and frankly, I just don't do it. Like, I have to be honest with you. But I'm grateful that there are men like Stott who, who could and who do. I think of C.S. Lewis, who, he never got married until his late 50s. He gave the world a brilliant array of uh, philosophic probings of the depths of the Christian truth for which we have to be eternally grateful. If you look further back in history, you see Robert Murray McShane of Scotland. He was this young guy. He just turned over the British Isles. Uh, you know, even though he died, he died before he was 30. Uh, he was just a remarkable influencer. Another Canadian, virtually unknown by many, Margaret, Margaret Clarkson. She's a, or was a prolific hymn writer. Uh, and uh, it was interesting, as a single woman, she wrote an article, and she's, it, it, the article was entitled, Single But Not Alone. Her, her opening paragraph was this. To know God, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is sovereign and that my life is in his care, is the unshakable foundation on which I stay my soul. Such knowledge has deep significance for the Christian, for the single Christian. She then goes on to talk about her struggles and how she didn't accept singleness for a long time, but she finally came to accept it and how grateful she ultimately became and how profound was her experience of discovering that he could meet the loneliness of her life and that she would never be alone because of his presence. And this is really what Paul has in mind. 
Paul himself is actually an example of this. He was able to travel up and down the whole length and breadth of the Roman Empire out of the dedication to the Spirit of God, out of his devotion of the heart. He lived in complete moral purity. And by the grace and the power of God, there come these remarkable letters that we have that changed the history of the world. And all he is saying is that the single life is good. And if anybody desires or chooses it or accepts it, it's actually a high and holy calling and that is perfectly appropriate. Paul's a realist. And he knows that it's not easy to be single. And one of the pressures every single person faces is sexual pressure. Those yearnings, those desires. And, 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 and so Paul brings that up in verse 36. If anybody's worried that he might not be acting properly on or towards the version he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, he ought to marry. He should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who's made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry does better. Specifically, Paul's talking to engaged couples. And he says, in effect, if they find it difficult to keep their passions under control, if they tend to go towards that dangerous area of giving away into sexual immorality, which he's already addressed, then it's far better for them to marry. But if their passions are strong and they nevertheless can keep themselves under control and they decided that it's better not to marry, but rather to pursue other certain advantages that God has, and Paul says, well, then it's better for you not to marry. See, Paul, unlike our culture, suggests that it's very possible to control our sexual drives. And, and this is, uh, this, this, the key is the phrase, who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his will. And what he's talking about is that there's someone who has, there, there is someone who has learned to be secure in their identity as being one with the Lord. They have learned the secret of, of strength that, and, and that is the affirmation of significance and meaning for which they might have in order to function. He, they know who they are before God. They stand in that. This is what we talked about last week. So that person is able to draw deeply upon the love and the strength and the affirmation of Jesus himself and therefore is even able to handle the pressures of sex. It doesn't deny the feelings, it doesn't deny the yearnings, but you're able to handle it. Now, if that is the case, Paul says then uh, they would do well not to marry because he has opened the doors of opportunity and they can enter um, and, and do wonderful things that if a person gets married, maybe marriage would not permit that. Finally, Paul takes up the matter of emotional pressure. Verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, Paul says, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Paul's obviously looking at... uh, and thinking about an older woman, that's the example. A widow whose husband has died, who's, who's left alone, misses the companionship, the fellowship of her mate. Could describe it as the emptiness of life. She's tempted to plunge back into marriage, just maybe for that companionship alone. And what Paul says here, which is really interesting, is be careful. You know, uh, that's an emotional pressure that, that people go through. Many succumb to it without any thought of what the alternative might be 
But, he says, if she does succumb to it, it's all right. It's not a centering error. But notice the, the stipulation. He says, as long as it's to, to another Christian, somebody who's in the Lord. Why? Because the importance of sharing your faith and life with that. But yet he still has his judgment saying that maybe she's going to be happier if she remains unmarried. Paul is saying married life is good, proper, and right. But Paul is also saying so is being single. And the thrust of this whole passage is against those who tend to look down upon and make jokes about single people. They look upon them as odd or strange, even perverted, making disparaging remarks and about when are you going to get married and what's wrong with you and how come nobody's chosen you, etc. We Christians ought to, above all others, to face the facts as Paul lays them out here and see that single life is completely is perfectly appropriate style of life and approved and encouraged if some choose to fulfill that. And what a wholesome view of life this is, whether you're married or single. The great thing here is that we keep our priorities in focus. You know, we, we live not for this passing world scene, but for a greater life that lies ahead, that's waiting for us. This unbelievable world of opportunity still awaits. And that's where the Christian hope ought to be. So I began to think about this whole passage. I actually go back to the point where, you know, Paul says getting married basically gives you a whole lot of extra burdens. And then I began reflecting over my ministry, and we've all seen young people who appeared to be sold out in their service to God um, as, as single adults, as young adults, and here people are doing amazing things. Then they meet someone of the opposite of sex. There's nothing wrong with that. And they get married. And as their obligations grow, the first thing that actually gets pushed out of their life is their commitment to the Lord and his work. And this is what Paul's talking against. But once they were involved, you know, you was, once you would see people involved in ministry, but now they have no time for it, right? Once they would faithfully attend Sunday gatherings, but now they find other things to do with their marriage partner and their children maybe take up all their time, right? There's always now an excuse. And there, there must be a balance, and each one of us who is married must try to maintain the balance between fulfilling our marriage obligations and serving the Lord in his work. And that's tough. It's not an easy balance to keep, but we must always wrestle with ourselves so that we manage to keep life in perspective. You know, we can neglect our marriages because our service for the Lord is so great, right? Well, what does that do? But then the other option is sometimes we neglect the Lord because our service to our life partners. And so when we're married, we're sort of caught in between and we have to ask God to help us, help those of us who are married, help us keep balance. And then on the other hand, there are certain responsibilities and obligations that come with that choice of marriage. And I've seen this. Many missionaries, many pastors, evangelists have caused a great deal of harm in their marriages and their families by ignoring that very fact. They thought that the, they had to push on to what God has called them, but they ignored the very thing that they decided to enter in in the first place. I look at our society today. Many Christians are more concerned about their bank balances, their houses, their cars, than they are about their relationship with God. 
And so in times of affluence, it's so easy to live for the pleasures of this world, right? It's so easy to set out targets in life, more leisure time, more holidays, uh, earlier retirement date, more comforts in our homes in such a way that these things dominate our thinking at the expense of the things of God. And so what happens is that we can be strongly attached to this world, even though it's passing away, that we hardly have time for spiritual things that really matter. Paul is trying to bring that to our attention. And so possessions can keep us, like not just a relationship and the obligations you have in a relationship, but even possessions keep us tied down. And we can end up regretting the burden of those things that are placed on us if it was the call, Lord's will instead. Let me re- rephrase that, sorry. We can end up regretting the burden of those things placed on us. We can end up regretting the burden of those things placed on us. We need to be free and flexible to his call. We can easily find ourselves spending our time uh, trying to keep up with everybody else, trying to achieve happiness through this good life, and the things of this world can be misused by us. They can end up occupying the place in our hearts that only God should occupy. But when God calls us to a service, we find ourselves in a state of conflict because we're so wrapped up with things that really don't matter, and yet there's a part of us that really wants to do what God is calling us to do. And sadly, we become more concerned with outward things than we are with God. I think this is seen, seen when something in our home breaks down. You know, it causes us great distress, it causes anxiety, and yet we don't seem to get upset with when all our relationship with the Lord breaks down. You ever notice that? Your car can go and it's, life is over, but as you drift away from God, it doesn't really make an effect. We spend hours trying to fix one of our broken possessions, and yet we spend very little time trying to repair our relationship with Jesus. Why is this? Is it because we have, maybe we got life the wrong way? Maybe we're living for the here and now instead of living for eternity. And yet Paul's advice to us is to live as if the possessions did not belong to us that they're not that important. Live as if that success did not happen. You may be flourishing in success, but what is God calling you to do? You may have commitments and responsibilities here that you need to tend to, but remember, God still has a call on your life. And our minds need to be set on things uh, above, uh, on things above, not on, on earthly things. We need to have our mind focused on heavenly things, on spiritual things, but we also have to keep this balance. And, and that's really what this passage is about. It's only secondarily about the questions that the Corinthians had about marriage. The main thing on Paul's heart, the principle that would give meaning to the other elements in this passage, is that we need to learn to make the kind of life choices and major decisions that enable us to give undistracted devotion and service to Jesus. I need to say this. Singleness is positive. It's good. It's actually something to be cherished and maximized. We are not, we ought not waste our singleness by viewing it as a trial to be endured. And as we see from Scripture, the only godly alternative to marriage is celibacy. But the choice between marriage and celibacy is not the choice between intimacy and loneliness. 
or at least it shouldn't be. Being single is not the same as being lonely. And in life, we can manage without sex. Believe it or not, it's actually possible. We know this. Jesus himself lived as a celibate man, but we're not designed to live without intimacy. Marriage is not the sole answer to the observation, right? It's not good for man to be alone. See, unfortunately, culture argues that sexual fulfillment is essential for human happiness. Think about that. That's because sex, despite every current evidence to the contrary, does not define what it means to be human. Sexual pleasure is, like any good gift, a temporary good to be enjoyed in its proper context. So that's what we've been talking about in the theology of sex. It's neither eternal nor ultimate, right? We have to keep that in mind. It's Paul who gives us some of the deepest reflections on sexuality and on marriage. Our Western culture, though, has identified sex and intimacy in that popular thinking that the two are virtually identical. And we cannot conceive of intimacy occurring without it in some ways being sexual, right? So when we hear how previous Previous generations described friendships in, in intimate terms. You know, some people, and I've seen it and I've heard it. Some people roll their eyes and, you know, uh, well, they're obviously gay. A slander, right? Sex and intimacy are not the same. And it's possible to have a lot of sex and have no intimacy, right? So sex is designed to deepen and express the intimacy that already exists. It cannot in itself create it but it's also possible to have a huge amount of God, godly, healthy intimacy without sex. Read the book of Proverbs. Friendship is far more than a verb for sharing your contact details on Facebook. A friend is somebody who knows your soul. Someone who doesn't just know lots about you, but somebody who knows you. And Proverbs shows us that we cannot hope to live wisely in God's world without such soul-to-soul friendships. All of us need them. Not just those who are single, but I've seen more than one marriage run into difficulty because the couple had looked entirely to one another to meet their friendship and intimacy needs and had not pursued good friendships alongside their marriage. It's not always easy to foster close friendships when you're established as a family, but it's vital. It's a vital discipline to open up your family life to others around you and to develop intimacy. When we find that we're actually able to cultivate these proverb-style friendships, we find it possible to enjoy a huge amount of intimacy in life. To have people who know you at your best and at your worst. To be deeply known, to be deeply loved, this is deep intimacy any of us can actually enjoy. And yet many around us never experience. Sadly, even in times of marriage. And so for those who remain single, they may not experience the unique depth of intimacy with one person that maybe a, a married friend might, but they can enjoy a unique breadth of in- intimacy with a number of close friends, and that comes from having a greater opportunity, a greater capacity than married people typically have to invest in close friendships. I think of the friendships that are the most important to me. Some have developed over many years. Others have become very deep relatively quickly. Some are married. A couple of them are single. 
It's a gift to know that there are a number of people out there who know me pretty much through and through and who nevertheless, they, they love me deeply. And so here's the larger principle that in our lives as followers of Jesus, we need to be careful to make the right decisions and right life choices. We must be careful not to, be kind, to become that, that kind of soil that chokes out God's will for us through thorns and, and the concerns of this world, right? We must make careful life choices that keep us as free as possible in whatever situation we are in. Why? So that we can serve Jesus in whatever way he calls us. Let's pray. Again, we thank you, Father, for the practicality of your word and this counsel from the wise and loving heart of Paul. I pray for all the single people in our community today, some who are going on to marriage soon and, and look forward to it with anticipation and delight, and others to whom you've already s- suggesting perhaps that you have another style for them, at least in this time. God, may they accept that with gladness and joy. May they look forward to an increasing adventure of delight along other paths that some of their friends have chosen, but nevertheless filled with the possibility of fulfillment and satisfaction. Be with us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So sanctuary, go with a tender and grateful heart, remembering that you may be the only gospel that your neighbor reads this week. So in all that you say and do, spread the grace of God, the love of Jesus, and the friendship of the Holy Spirit. Be blessed by the grace, love, and friendship of our Creator, and now you are commissioned to share it by being a blessing in the world in which he's placed you. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week.